This episode of Consumer VC is brought to you by Ferret. Okay, so let's say you're going to invest in a business or you're considering investment from someone else. How do you actually know if they're legit? Sometimes deals move so fast that it's tough to get that confidence fast. Luckily, there's Ferret, the first relationship intelligence tool for savvy investors and CEOs who need to know who they can trust. Running a quick search on Ferret can give you information like past lawsuits, bankruptcy, fraud allegations, new coverage, and also can be used to verify past successes that they claim. A new relationship is always exciting, but that also means trust is important from the start. To get in front of the line and join Ferret's exclusive early beta where you can be part of the first thousand that have an early look and help influence the product, head over to ferret.ai and use the promo code CONSUMERVC. This episode is also presented by Gorgeous, the number one help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce stores, and can turn your customer support into a private center. We're going to hear from Alex from Princess Polly to learn more. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. Our demographic is Gen Z, and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are, and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels located in one place. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Stay tuned after the episode where I chat with Rowan from the Gorgeous team, where he shares three tips to help manage your customer support center during the holidays. Link in show notes to sign up for Gorgeous and to get two months free. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Will Schmidt, head of venture strategy at Maroma Ventures. Maroma just launched a $100 million fund Focus on consumer and media brands. Previously, Will was at Naturezza and led investments in Oros, Yellowbird. If you happen to remember, the founder of Yellowbird, George, was on the show, who's awesome, and Clean Cult. He also previously co-founded Trail Post Ventures with another podcast guest, Nick Mendel. You might remember his episode. He's also amazing. With Will, we discuss how he thinks about fund differentiation, starting a business online versus in retail and pulling the right levers for growth. Without further ado, here's Will. Will, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Um, Wanted to first start at the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to finance and consumer? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of grew up um, and had kind of more of a, I guess, early interest in the financial markets. Um, was trading stocks from a pretty early age and um, started uh, Miami University's one of their first uh, stock clubs, investment clubs. And so was really always kind of interested in, in the finance world. And I guess I naturally gravitated towards consumer. Just always had an interest in being able to 
kind of see and experience the products um, in the grocery store or at retail, really have kind of firsthand, you know, tangible experience with the products. So naturally kind of gravitated to the consumer sector pretty early on. That's one of the most beautiful things about consumer that you're dealing with real tangible products that you can understand the products. So yeah, I know that 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 makes a lot of sense in terms of uh, why you would be attracted to it. How did you make your way into investing? Yeah, you know, I, I took a fairly traditional path within finance. I started out in investment banking advisory work in the middle market uh, with William Blair and Raymond James and um, kind of cut my teeth there, understanding the buy side and sell side, you know, advisory uh, process and um, you know, doing a lot of the, the work as an analyst um, for, uh, for the buy side and sell side transactions. And then um, transitioned into more of the buy side investment oriented work in private equity with a lower middle market private equity fund out of the Bay Area. Again, looking at consumer uh, businesses, food, beverage, beauty, um, from a buyout uh, perspective. And that's really where I got more interested on uh, from an investment perspective, how to assess a business, really dig into the growth plan and, you know, assess the differentiators versus the competition, et cetera. And, and from there, you know, I became much more interested in, in early stage consumer, which kind of naturally led me to where I'm at now, focusing on, you know, venture growth stage businesses. No, that's awesome. How did you end up joining uh, Maroma? And if you could tell us a little bit of the backstory about Maroma as well, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, of course. Happy happy to provide a high level. So I actually got connected through a, a former colleague and former CEO of Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf, Mel Elias, connected me to, to the team and, um, and really just hit it off from day one. You know, they had a a very extensive, uh, successful track record investing in early stage businesses within consumer and media platforms and consumer tech. And, you know, I had a prior experience at, at Beachwood Capital as was with my own firm, Trail Post Ventures, investing in the space. And so really it was a nice alignment and a good fit from, as I said, from day one. And so, um, you know, the overall group uh, really structured as a marketing media company. So over the years, um, they've done a really good job acquiring um, smaller independent marketing agencies, each known for a particular skill set or focus area within marketing, uh, whether it's you know social influencer strategy, digital acquisition strategy, pure comms uh, strategy, website and app development, uh, you name it. We've got a, a full suite of marketing services at this point, and that's that's really what we look to do is is engage as a marketing partner and a strategic partner uh, as an investor in in early stage businesses. How do you think about right now? Um, it seems like I understand it on the fund differentiation side as well as you had differentiation since you own a lot of these agencies and run are able to provide entrepreneurs with amazing access to top level talent when it comes to on the marketing side. I'm always curious about how do you think about price in today's landscape since it seems like everything is just so freaking competitive. Yeah, no, it is, especially at the venture and growth stage. I think um, a lot of the large corporations have have recognized that most of the innovation and and growth these days is coming from very early on companies sub 50 million uh, net sales. And so the investment in this venture growth stage has become more and more competitive. And I I think about the, I guess, the, the competition or the investors in a few different buckets. Um, one of them would be kind of the the family offices, high net worth, angel investor type crowd, you know, that are active typically very early on, seed and pre-seed type um, type investments. Um, the next stage would be, you know, the institutional traditional venture capital growth growth equity type funds. These are the investors that are typically the lead investors that are 
you know, um, really doing the diligence that are essentially have raised funds to deploy capital and earn a return on on that capital. And then the other bucket, I would say you have more um, corporate or CBC arms um, that um, are, are launching a market and investing in businesses really early on. And so I think what's nice about us is we're, we're somewhere in between um, that corporate CBC and, and more of that traditional uh, venture capital fund model because we have the operating assets and knowledge base within marketing media that we can bring to the table and provide strategic value. Um, but then we also have the, the track record and institutional investment experience to be able to assess and diligence opportunities at a very high level. Do you ever get worried on the on the corporate and CBC arm when you are looking at a company that might be backed by a strategic. Is that ever a worry for you? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, we run on, run into it quite often at, at that seed and series A stage, which is you know where we focus and spend most of our time. And um, to be honest, we're, we're really uh, typically providing guidance and trying to um, tell our partners that they need to surround themselves with the best in class and best possible partners. Typically at that seed and series A stage, it may be a little bit early to take a corporate investment and it may discourage other strategic suitors or acquirers down the road. So we like to see strategic partners be involved, but not necessarily on the cap table or from an investment perspective. What we really want is our partners to have you know, a diverse group of investors that can add value in different ways. And essentially, they're trying to build the dream team um, for, for the business, for the entrepreneur. Interesting. Interesting. I also wanted to know, I know one of your areas is obviously consumer brands want to pay, pay particular attention to like digital brands. And we talked about it on the show a lot, but would love to get your take on, it's never been easier to start a company, but harder to, to actually uh, develop that company into a brand since there's so much noise, so many other players. And of course, as an investor, you ultimately have to invest in the companies that are going to achieve the appropriate venture capital returns that you're wanting or, or think you could achieve. How do you think about what it takes in order for some of these brands to get past the noise of competition. Like what are maybe some metrics or things that you look for that may be early signs that, hey, this company actually could be venture backable? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I like to see digitally native brands really develop a loyal following uh, of consumers, really have a, a, a tribe segmented in, in their market and really build from that base. Um, I want to see success. Obviously want to underwrite to, to you know, attractive e-com uh, metrics and nice return on ad spend. Um, want to see a nice growth trajectory to the business. But but then, you know, right around kind of that that series A stage, I like to see inroads into wholesale or retail, if you will. I like to see, um, you know, relationships being formed with, um, you know, if it's a food and beverage company, the major uh, grocery retailers within, you know, their markets and, um, and really thinking about channel strategy, whether you're going through the natural channel, the club channel, you know, conventional channel. And so want to see that for, for a variety of reasons. What I like to think about is capital efficiency, right? So a lot of the digitally native brands, you can scale a business quite nicely acquiring customers and raising capital only just direct to consumer. But at a certain point, your return on that ad spend really becomes, um, you know, not as not as efficient in terms of the capital that you're spending. So what I want to see is, is a business explore wholesale and really develop a brand presence at wholesale and reach the consumer in a variety of different occasions, um, because it can be quite quite expensive these days to scale a business only D to C. And I think um, 
that can only happen in, in certain segments and certain markets. So I'm always encouraging our partners to really develop more of an omni-channel presence and think about capital efficiency as they scale. And then um, how do I reach the consumer on a variety of different occasions? So on that point, I've had on Ernesto Schmidt. Um, I assume you're not related. No, no relation, no. And he said that he thinks that consumer brands are headed to retail too early. On the other hand, I've had on Andy Dunn, the founder of uh, Bonobos, and he said that he actually thinks that brands should be thinking about an omnichannel uh, strategy from the get-go. Where do you sit on this? I know it's obviously probably category dependent, but when do you think it's the right time that brands should be thinking about heading into retail? Yeah, as you highlighted, I think it's it's very much specific to the business and specific to the sector on where the business it, you know sits and how it's positioned. I do think the best place to start, um, as as we just talked about, is is online D to C, right? The barriers have never never been lower. It's never been more cost effective to launch a business online, and really, you know, it's a great way to get to know your consumer to really test your product and, and refine your strategy and and think about the growth strategy going forward. Um, so I would say starting DTC is, is a great place to start and scale the business, develop that loyal following um, and make sure that you've got, you know, you've reached kind of that proof of concept stage. Um, and that's how I like to think about it, launching the market, uh, demonstrating proof of concept. And as soon as you've demonstrated proof of concept, you start to get inbound interest from retailers, consumers asking, hey, when can, where can I find you in the store? Or where, what grocery stores are you? Are you, are you um, is a product shelved at? That's really when you want to start to think about retail. I think one of the things you want to think about going to retail and launching into retail too early can really be devastating for a business, right? It puts too much stress on the business, very expensive in terms of trade spend, slotting, distribution, you know, to be on retail and on shelf. Some brands and businesses go into retail too early on. So I wouldn't want to see them go right out of the gate into retail. Um, on the flip side, some some products don't lend themselves to the D2C online format. So you have, need to be cognizant of that as well. But generally, right around the Series A stages is where I like to see the business, as I said, develop that retail pipeline, have some early successes, even upon a regional basis in retail, and then expand from there. No, okay, got it. So the Series A stage is when a brand you believe, and I know category dependent, but a brand, if there were to be a wholesale addition to the brand, if, if it does make sense, the Series A stage is maybe the point at which when you actually develop, when you actually start to consider or you start to go into retail. That makes a lot of sense. I know also, you know, we've talked about this a couple of times on the show, but would love your take as well. Investors talk a lot about how they want to see community at the very, very beginning. And uh, which how I think about community is, you know, organic growth. It's word of mouth. People are so excited about it that they're telling all their friends. If you happen to have any examples or just how you think about where you can kind of sense community and you kind of know it when you see it. If you happen to have any examples around when you've seen community in the early stages and you were pretty amazed by it. It's certainly very, very important for the brand building that community, right? And it goes back to this as you highlighted, building that loyal following of consumers. Um, you want your consumers to be very engaged, right? You want them to be true believers in the brand, in your mission, your values. Um, and you also want them to be very active, right? You don't, you don't want your consumer base to, to, to not be um, active, engaging, sharing the product, sharing with others within the community and helping build the community. You want 
want them to be very active. And I think if you build the community the right way, um, can really can really amplify the brand, right? And have long lasting effects for for the business. Um, first, I think you need you need a compelling reason to join the community, right? I think you want a consumer to find you and um, and really understand the solution, you know, what you're solving in terms of a problem, what solution you're providing, and have a compelling reason for them to join. And then I think you want you want them to be motivated, as I said, to interact within the community, inter- um, help build the brand with you, help build the community, and and really be engaged. And I think it's. It's difficult to do, but you know, a number of our partners have done a great job building um, a loyal following and a community of, of true believers. Um, one I would point to is an investment that I made in a company called Nutpods that really started online, direct to consumer, um, built a business on Amazon from there, and then explored more of a traditional grocery retail expansion strategy. And um, really incredible uh, founder and authentic founder story that found a found a gap in the market and found you know put out a better product in, in terms of plant-based non-dairy creamer product that had the consistency of a half and half you know delivered on taste but in very clean format she really built up a loyal following did a great job engaging her community and, and really building the brand as i said from d2c and amazon um, with that loyal following of consumers and then when she launched into grocery retail you know it really had exponential effects for, for the brand and the business Gosh, I'm so glad you brought up Madeline and Nut Pods. That was a really fun episode to do with her. She's terrific. And I agree. I agree. I mean, learning from her and, and her experience, how she was able to build uh, the brand and really learn online as well, how that helped shape her in terms of like what packaging she should do and the messaging. She talked about how reading Amazon reviews really helped kind of shape part of the brand for Nut Pods, which I thought was really fascinating too. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Amazon can, you know, is typically the first place these days that the consumers will look and, you know, they'll go and look, just as you said, for the reviews, read through the reviews, look at the ratings of the product. So it can be a great first place to engage the consumer and um, you want to make sure that you're, you're highlighted well and, and show well on Amazon. How do you think about Amazon and do you at all get worried or nervous if the overwhelming majority of their sales is on Amazon? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think um, you absolutely should be on Amazon. I think there are some products that lend themselves better to the Amazon format and value proposition. But I think that is, you know, one of the first places that consumers these days, even before Google, will go and and search for products. Um, They'll go on Amazon, they'll get a sense for the products that are offered, the ratings, the reviews. And really, that's, that's the way that, you know, kind of their first source or discovery for brands and products that they're looking for. So I think that's, it's necessary to be on. It can be a challenge in terms of scaling a business only Amazon and it would certainly be a concern from an investment standpoint if that made up, you know, the majority of your sales if you're just an Amazon specific business. Um, again, going back to the point, we like to see diversity in channel mix and omni-channel presence, right? So having a nice direct-to-consumer business is fine, but want to see it complemented with a, a wholesale presence and really, you know, obviously presence in other online retailers other than Amazon. But yeah, I think it's I think it's very important to be on Amazon. They can be a great partner if you know if uh, structured the right way and you work with them the right way. And um, I think it's it's certainly a place that consumers are comfortable shopping. You know, I I always like that they put the consumer first, right? In terms of uh, what they've done in terms of a business model and putting the consumer first, I think it's amazing. So, in order for you to get excited or for to consider an investment in a company, 
you have to see the company win on multiple fronts, if I'm hearing you right. And that I'm really talking about like this, like this, like channel diversity. They have to have a very strong, maybe D 2 C channel, Amazon channel, or other retail channels, wholesale channels. So they have to almost be winning on multiple fronts. It can't just be single channel. Yeah, yeah. I like to see inroads, so it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, the the proof point, or as you said, be be winning on multiple channels. But I do like to see that that's part of the long term strategy that maybe they've, you know, they've expanded nicely on online and on Amazon and other retailers and have a, a regional presence um, in, a, in a certain grocery chain with demonstrated velocity off shelf and, and performance and plans to expand, you know, on um, through through other distribution centers or on a more on a broader national basis with that retailer. That's what I want to see is, is really the pipeline into retailers and the strategy that we're going to develop into more of an omni-channel presence as opposed to um, we've got the blinders on and we're going to, we're going to, you know, scale this business online D to C and, you know, we can raise capital and continue to scale the business forever online. Got it. Got it. Got it. I also wanted to know too, since you invest in both uh, technology businesses um, and also consumer brands, what is the percentage within consumer brands versus consumer technology and as well as advertising technology businesses? Because, you know, when it comes to technology, usually the results are, are a lot more binary, right? And they usually, if it hit, it then can become a billion dollar business. Whereas in consumer, that's not really the case, right? You probably have a lot more winners, but they're not going to be performing as well. I'd love to just kind of understand a little bit about the fund and how you think about since, since the return profile on both these, of course, I'm speaking very macro here, but all these two different types of businesses are just quite different. So I'd love to just kind of you kind of understand how you're thinking about it. No, absolutely. Yeah, we do look, those are the two primary categories. We'll look at, you know, CPG businesses as well as media platforms. Um, I would say what we look for um, within consumer is we spend a lot of time in food, beverage, beauty, personal care, uh, health and wellness, uh, fitness. Um, and, and there are some parallels to, to consumer as well as to the consumer tech. Um, in terms of more tech forward businesses or apps that still have that consumer branded presence. And that's really what we look for is, is that consumer brand and that branded presence. Um, you know, we were uh, investors in, in Pinterest and ClassPass and Micmac and some of these you know, more, more media platforms or consumer tech businesses, but then, you know, also spending a lot of time, as I said, in, in those pure consumer products categories. And so, yeah, we spend most of our time in, at the seed series A stage. And really for us, it's thinking through and, and trying to identify partners that we're well aligned with strategically. And, and by that, I mean, we want to be a partner that's active, adding value and really incentivized to, to really be, you know, a long-term strategic partner. Um, and so that's, that's why we're bringing our marketing expertise to the table really early on and trying to be, you know, a very impactful investor and partner to these businesses. And then we can grow with them over the long term because we work with very large companies like Amazon Audible and, and Netflix and um, Spotify and Masterclass. Um, so that's really the, the goal for us is to be a, a long term partner and be able to provide a breadth of services for, for these businesses. Got it. So you're able to, in the companies that you're investing in that are in the advertising space, in some ways you're able to help them out because you also have your other companies that are in CPG. Is that is that kind of right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think, um, you know, we're fortunate to have, you know, great relationships with, with very large corporate CPG and great working relationships. And then for the venture and growth stage, it can be very strategic as well, just in terms of leveraging our broader network, leveraging our 
you know, our operating advisors and those around the team and adding value in different ways. I think that that's really what sets us apart beyond just being able to provide the marketing expertise and marketing capabilities is, is really having that broader network and um, really being more active as an investor as opposed to passive. Now on the consumer brands side of things, would you invest in, in a company that is in multiple categories? I was, I was talking with the founder of um, Public Goods, Morgan, and he was saying how the reason why a lot of investors pass very early on in his business is because he wanted to go in, in multiple different categories with Public Goods. And they were worried about what the actual exit could be because strategics don't typically buy companies that are across categories, usually single category companies. I'm just kind of curious of, of how you think about single category companies versus like multi-category companies. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, because we focus very early on in a, in a company's life cycle, typically we're seeing businesses with maybe a few product categories or even a singular product category focus. I get a little bit concerned to your point on companies that expand too quickly across product categories. And, and for the reason that it, it really stretches, you know, their, their supply chain and logistics and ability to really operate um, and execute at a very high level um, and be really, uh, you know, nim- still be nimble and with the overall organization. And so I think going into too many product categories too early can be a distraction and really stress, you know, stress the team and, um, and potentially, you know, stretch the, the overall organization too thin. And so. I do like to see more of a focus on certain product categories. Ideally, the product categories are complementary and you're building more of a platform. That's really what I want to see as opposed to having a you know, success in a singular product. And so, yeah, I'm not concerned if there's multiple product categories. If there's too many categories too early, that can be a concern. Got it. So it seems like you'd be worried or nervous if a company was expanding cross-category too early or maybe even by the time that that you were chatting with them, which is still, of course, in the early stages. Yeah. And you brought up a good point too on exit potential, which is something we, we, we think a lot about is who's going to be the strategic acquirer? What's the path to exit or liquidity? What does that look like? And, um, you know, having too many being having too many product categories, right, can be less, less in interest you know, of interest to a strategic acquirer if they're trying to fill a certain gap in their portfolio or if they're interested in a certain sector within the market. How do you also think about the, of course, the epic battle between profitability and growth? I've had on a couple of investors who were in, you know, private equity um, in CPG. And the reason why they came back down to venture capital, why they came downstream to venture capital was because they saw a much better opportunity of investing in companies and making them profitable since they felt that private equity were backing funds at companies that eventually became overcapitalized and weren't able to reach that exit potential that, that we all were hoping for. And so how do you think about exits? How do you think about profitability and growth, um, I guess, after you make an investment? Yeah, no, unfortunately, I think you see it too often, the scenario you outlined of, of raising, potentially overcapitalizing a business and really having myopic focused on just how, how quickly can I scale? How can I scale as fast as possible and become as as large as possible in terms of an organization. And, you know, really you're setting yourself and, you know, the business and the investors up for failure because you're setting, you know, you're putting too much stress on the organization and the valuation becomes um, really prohibitive at, at a certain point. And so what I like to see is a, a much more methodical approach to growth. I, I don't want to see growth just for the sake of growth. I want to see 
you know, a, a very, as I said, methodical strategy, a very detailed channel strategy to growth. Um, you know, like to see obviously a return on spend when you're looking to acquire customers, but I also want to see businesses develop a, a you know brand presence and, and think about creative and brand building activities and, and really recruiting you know best in class talent and um, developing the the culture and, and as we talked about building the community. Um, also, you know, from a pure financial standpoint, I like to see businesses manage to a healthy margin profile. Um, many businesses are, are too focused on growth and um, are looking to grow the top line, but they're doing so in a very unprofitable or or um, you know in a poor economic uh, unit economic from a unit economic standpoint. So I like to see the you know businesses even at an early stage manage to you know that gross margin profile. Think about expanding gross margin, and then eventually it would be nice to see a path to profitability. We don't always see that at the venture stage, but um, but I like to at least look look to that, and I like to have a strategy to manage that. On the growth margin profile, do you think that for some of the brands that are starting out, um, digitally native? Do you think sometimes they might not have, they might be pricing their products wrong because they might not be taken in consideration of what wholesale would look like? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. I think um, depending on the product category, you can have phenomenal online margins. Um, and then there are also other, some products potentially if you're, you know, you have, it's very high shipping costs or maybe potentially a beverage company or, you know, some of the online meal kit and meal delivery companies you know, have challenges on, on margin and fulfillment. And so online, you know, direct to consumer can be a great business and you can have a healthy margin profile. Many of the, uh, the beauty companies and skincare companies have phenomenal margin profiles um, on, on direct business. But then as, as you highlighted, I really want to see the management think about what the margin profile is going to be in wholesale and what the blended overall gross margin, what that's going to look like as the business scales over the next few years. Um, so that's something we spend a lot of time on breaking the margin down by product uh, and product category and then by channel as well. Got it. Got it. Now that's, that's really helpful. What are some of the particular verticals or trends within consumer that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, you know, lately, and I don't know if it's a product of the pandemic and everybody working from home with, you know, kind of back-to-back Zooms and, and never having a breath, but, um, you know, health and wellness has always been exciting to me and not, you know, obviously not just physical health and eating better and having a um, you know, a healthier diet, but really mental health and stress management. So I think that's a really interesting area for innovation with, you know, companies leveraging technology and, and, and leveraging, you know, video conferencing and ability to, uh, to engage with a therapist or to really, you know, seek help. And so I think that's a really interesting category. And it's a huge, huge market it really has applications globally. So I think that's a category that I'm seeing a lot of activity that I think is really interesting. Another one actually that's spurred on by by the pandemic silver lining is, is pet. So you know I think initially you, you saw kind of the the human grade pet food and and businesses direct to consumer pet food businesses come to market, but now you're seeing more in general pet health and pet wellness, uh, pet care, even tele- telepet type businesses. And so I think the pet category is really, really interesting from consumers will spend more on their pets than they do sometimes on, on family members or themselves. And so I think that's a really interesting area that we're spending time in. Another area that I think is um, seeing more and more is um, you know, social impact businesses or sustainability themed businesses. I think as we look to millennial and, and Gen Z and younger generations, I think 
sustainability, the environment, global warming. These are things that are very, very important to them. And they want to see businesses and products innovate and disrupt very large incumbents. And so I think the sustainability theme, I think is really interesting. It's here, here to stay. So seeing a lot of activity in that space. Of the social impact businesses and sustainability, it seems like there's so many brands that say that they're sustainable Sometimes I feel like maybe a little bit of it's a little bit of a buzzword, but sometimes I don't really understand what like sustainability means. As an investor, when a brand comes to you or a founder comes to you and say that they're a sustainable brand, what are maybe like examples of what that means to you? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is to a certain extent, it is a buzzword because it is very, very common these days to have, you know, a sustainability theme in a business. Um, and so what I like to look look for is, is dig in at, uh, you know, just a level further and understand um, what is the sustainability uh, claim? Is it a, a sustainability claim of this is our important to us in terms of our mission and our values and our culture, which may be fine. But what I'd like to see is, is maybe even further, you know, we've got sustainable packaging or we've, we've come up with some sort of innovation in sustainable apparel, right? Bamboo apparel, or maybe it's an at-home product. And so that's what I like to see is sustainability. And then not just in the, in the mission and culture and values, but, but actually with the product, the packaging, the supply chain, um, some segment of the business that, that has some sort of moat or differentiation that they can hang their hat on that says, no, we've got tech innovation or we've got IP. Um, and it is sustainable, and we're disrupting this this in industry that has issues, um, you know, environmentally or socially, or one of the other uh, sustainable themes. I know. Also, one of your missions is to invest in underrepresented founders, and we've talked and talked time again on this show about how people invest, um, people who actually look like them. And of course, we've seen this in venture capital; it's overwhelmingly white male um, dominant and the companies that get funded are founders who are white male in the overwhelming majority. What do you do differently about making sure that you are investing or at least exposed to founders that are diverse and make sure that you have a diverse network? Yeah, it's a great question. I think first you need to recognize that there is a bias, as you highlighted. And, you know, you can look at the statistics, right? Female founders or capital, venture capital funds that have gone to female founders, right? Three to 5% or, or maybe even less than that, depending on the sector. Um, so I think you certainly need to recognize that there's an issue. There's a bias, it could be subliminal, but there is a problem. And so I think the way we think about it is we, we want to invest in underrepresented talent and, and founders that are underrepresented, really, you know, support these founders because ideally as a partner and an investor, we want founders that have gone through some sort of adversity, whether it's personally or professionally and experienced and overcome that adversity, right? I think you learn, obviously you learn more from your failures than you do your successes. And so founders that have that sort of mental toughness that are from diverse walks of life is, is really who we want to support. And those are the businesses that are actually statistically, again, looking at the research, those are some of the best performing businesses as well. So I think it's not just it's not just a charity type of proposition having this sort of strategy. It makes a lot of good business sense. And so that's what we're looking for is not just the partners that went to the right schools or have the right pedigrees. We want uh, founders that have experienced challenges, you know, learn from those failures or have overcome adversity. And that's what we want to partner with. And we want to support those partners and, and bring to the table, you know, what we're best at, which are our marketing media expertise. I love that. I love that. That's great. That's great. Um, 
What is what is one thing that you would change about venture capital? Often, I would like to see more of a actually more of a community, more of a collaboration among firms. I think you you have this competitive dynamic, and and for good reason, right? There's only so so many great companies and entrepreneurs that are that are coming to market and it's becoming more and more competitive with with as much capital as there is on the sidelines and as many firms as there are on the market, but would like to see more of that mindset of collaboration and, and building a community. Really, at the end of the day, I, the reason why I say that is because it should be about putting together the best team to support the business and the entrepreneur. So too often it becomes a, more about how much uh, capital the, the business is raising, who the lead investor is, how much you know, who's getting allocated what, and it should really be about, you know, how are you adding value as an investor? What are you like strategically? What are you bringing into the table? How are you active? What's been your track record of doing that? Um, and so that's, that's what I would say is more, more collaboration, more of a transparent kind of conversation around that at, at the venture growth stage. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Yeah, personally, I'm a, you know, I'm a foodie at heart. So um, when I read Kitchen Confidential, Anthony Bourdain's book. I really enjoyed that. That was a great, great read. Uh, personally, also really enjoyed Shoe Dog by, by Phil Knight. It was an amazing book. Um, and professionally, I would say I'm a, I'm a Warren Buffett fan as as well. I've been for a long time, and so I would say Benjamin Graham, intelligent investor. Love it. Funnily enough, Shoe Dog is the most referenced book on this show. It's a great book. Um, great book. Um, no one has mentioned Kitchen Confidential, so really excited to add that one to the book list. And of course, yeah, Benjamin Graham's a classic. What's the best piece of advice that you've received or that you find yourself saying to yourself maybe over and over again? You know, I'm always on a, a quest for knowledge and personal growth. And so, you know, the advice of don't ever stop learning and, and growing as a person, I think is one that's kind of near, near and dear to me. And I think um, very important as well, as you think about how can I help uh, startups and entrepreneurs, it's really that quest for knowledge and um, you know, leveraging your network and your knowledge base to, to help the business and the founder. So I would say that's that's one. Um, another one that, I, that comes to mind is um, do what is right, not what is easy. And this goes back to having, you know, character and you know, reputation in our business because it's a very small business and being very, very transparent. You know, it will pay off in the long ends, the long run. So, um, yeah, those are two advices I would give. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? The advice I would give is surround yourself with the right people. Um, again, you want to build the dream team, um, not just with your internal uh, team and organization that you're recruiting for, but with the broader advisory and investor base. Um, you want to have diversity really across the board, people from all walks of life that can add value in different ways that have different experiences that they can share. And so that's what I would say is, is surround yourself with, with the right people. And, um, you know, in many respects, I think the early stage in terms of building uh, a business is about recruiting top talent. And it becomes much more, um, even more important as you scale the business, right, is, is, is competing and having the right people and the best people um, around the table. And, um, you know, one thing we always look for in founders as well is, is know where you're deficient, know where your gaps are. Um, you know, know what you don't know um, and really recruit or surround yourself with people that can, you know, help fill, fill in those gaps and add value. Well, Will, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on. Really enjoyed the conversation. And there you have it. It was amazing chatting with Will. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. Now let's hear from Rohan from Gorgeous. Rohan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well, Mike. How about yourself? 
I'm doing fantastic. I would love to learn a bit more about your company, Gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Gorgeous is an e-commerce focused help desk. We are an omni-channel solution. We aggregate a bunch of different channels that brands utilize to communicate with their customers. Uh, things like email, chat, phone, SMS, social media, um, any way really to get in touch with potential customers or customers that are looking to buy from your brand. What we do at Gorgeous is we build in a lot of automation and machine learning into the back end of the product. A lot of times what customers are asking to brands is, where's my order? What's my shipping status? Things that are very common and very repetitive. Uh, and what we do at Gorgeous is we help brands automate certain things so that they don't have to spend a lot of time focusing on those common and repetitive requests, but that they can actually spend a lot of time focusing on things that are much more complex in order to drive revenue uh, out of the CX function. So what we do is we actually integrate with uh, three platforms, Shopify, Magento2, and Big Commerce. And what we can do with those platforms is we can actually bring in variables um, from each of the three, things like order number, name, shipping information, tracking information, things that are easily accessible without ever having to leave the Gorgeous platform. And that makes things so much easier for the agents on the brand side of things to get back in touch with customers and make sure that they're helping them in the most efficient way possible. And I always like to talk about uh, social media as well. We have ad comments from Facebook and Instagram. We have Messenger. And we also have Instagram DMs, which is one of our most widely requested features uh, all across our customer base that we can actually bring into the gorgeous platform and help brands communicate with customers and prospective customers, uh, you know, perhaps before they ever hit their website. And so we're very e-commerce focused. We have about 7,000 brands all across the spectrum from early stage east, uh, from early stage e-commerce to much later stage mature companies as well. And we're also very international. That's awesome. So you're able to, with Gorgeous, to uh, brands can consolidate all requests that they get from customers, all the customers' tickets, asking where their orders are in one location. Sounds like it's going to save a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like gone are the days where brands are just using email to communicate with with their customers, right? They're using email, they're using social media, SMS is something that brands are really utilizing, especially over the last year or so. There's so many different ways to get in front of customers. CX is much more of a proactive activity now than it ever has been, as opposed to just purely reactive. And at Gorgeous, we help brands make things more efficient from, from an aggregation and automation perspective. So you have over 7,000 customers, which is amazing, 7,000 brands. From your perspective, when does it make sense for a brand to be thinking about partnering with Gorgeous or be using Gorgeous? It's a good question. Really, our baseline set of requirements is that, you know, they sit on Shopify or, or BigCommerce or Magento too. And that with the integrations that we have with those three platforms, that immediately makes any brand that's uh, looking to consolidate tickets uh, qualified customer for us, right? And so we have customers that are doing, you know, say 300 to 350 tickets a month, and maybe they're just using a couple different channels like just email and, and phone, for example. And then we have much more mature brands on the enterprise level that are accepting tens of thousands of tickets uh, and have multiple, multiple agents on the brand side working to get back to customers. And one of the things that we do differently at Gorgeous is we actually don't price based on the number of heads that you have using Gorgeous on the brand side. So we're not going to charge you for each additional user that you have on the platform. We're actually just going to charge based on ticket volume. And, and that's how we determine where on the spectrum you are. And for that reason, it generally, in combination with all the automation we build in, it tends to be very cost effective for brands. And not only are they saving potentially on that side of things, but they're also able to generate sales through the automation and machine learning that we have built in. And it gives a bunch of people access to the platform. So if someone on the engineering team wants to hop in or the CEO wants to hop in, 
they can do so. And it's not going to cost the brand anymore. That's awesome. That's awesome. As we're approaching the holidays here, what are three tips for managing the customer experience that you have for the brand? Since obviously in retail, the holiday period is the busiest time. Number one um, is personalize all your interactions with customers. The worst thing that you can do as a brand is make your customers feel like they're just a number, not an actual person. And in the event where you're not getting back to customers in a sufficient amount of time, or you're not getting them the right answer, or you're not addressing them by name, it's very likely that a combination of these things, or even one of these things, is going to convince that customer to go to a different brand. I mean, there's so much competition out there nowadays that consumers are willing to pay a couple extra bucks just for that more personal interaction with the brand. And so make sure you're personalizing that interaction with your customers and making them feel like you want to have a relationship with them long term. Number two is automate frequently asked questions. Uh, I talked a little bit about this earlier, but one of the most common requests we see, uh, especially in the DTC environment with brands, is, you know, where's my order? What's my shipping? status? When is it going to get here? Questions that you and I have both asked in the past as well. And we're finding that agents are spending way too much time manually responding to these kinds of requests. And it's not allowing them to focus on really getting in front of prospective new customers um, via a number of other different channels. And so what we can do with the integrations is we can bring in the variables like name, order information, tracking information. Um, and we could set rules in the background to automatically respond to customers if they were to, for example, ask about shipping or, or status of their order. And that's just one example. But there are a number of other ways that the brands can use automation. The important thing there, obviously, is to not overuse automation. There, There's only so much that you can do with, with that piece of the equation. And if you do overuse it, then that takes away from point number one, which is personalization. And number three, find opportunities to drive revenue through, through customer support. Customer support, as I mentioned earlier, is no longer just a, a reactive piece of the organization. It's much more proactive nowadays. So institute live chat campaigns. Hop on a page in front of a customer, uh, basically inducing them to make a purchase by telling them something that they want to hear or helping them out in, in making a decision in terms of product in your website. Utilize social media. If somebody comes in and comments on one of your ads and says they love this product that you posted, respond to them directly in line from within Gorgeous and provide them with a discount code to induce them to come to your website. Institute SMS campaigns. SMS is, is being widely adopted across the industry now, especially over the last year or so. And if you have a new product launch, announce it via SMS. People are on their phones all the time. And chances are they're at least going to click through that link to get to your website and take a look at what you have to offer, especially if they've been customers of yours in the past. And, and if they haven't, then it's a chance to, to gain new customers. So be proactive, not reactive is point number three. And you know, if you combine those three things, I think you're going to have a successful BFCM. No, I love that. I love that. So in just to recap, number one, personalize all interaction with customers. We, we talk a lot about on the show about the trend of uh, personalizing products. Well, also personalize those interactions with customers as well when they do have maybe uh, some pain points. It goes so far. In your second point, automate frequency or, or have an FAQ sheet um, absolutely makes total sense. And the third point I love, which is turning your customer experience or your customer service center from a cost center into a revenue driver. And I think that is pretty amazing um, idea and also really cool because then you get, then you can also influence a repeat rate. And at the same time, if you don't have a great customer service center, if that's not fully baked out and you maybe aren't personalized with customers, then they might churn and you might lose them to a competitor. So that's awesome, Rohan. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 